Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. 69 million. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. I'm going to Disney World. That audio right there is courtesy from a video from Christie's, the 250 plus years old London-based art and collectibles auction house. And it depicts the reaction of a South Carolina-based graphic designer, Michael Winkleman, reacting to an art piece that's titled Every Day's The First 5,000 Days. And this art piece sold for over $69 million at a Christie's auction earlier this year. This places Mike Winkleman in pretty esteemed company His art piece has sold for the third most amount paid for any art piece among living artists. But Mike didn't sell a painting that you'd find at the Louvre or at MoMA. He didn't use his hands to shape and carve a sculpture or meticulously craft a piece of fine jewellery with gold and gems. In fact, to put it really simply, the $69 million piece of art is actually a collage of JPEG images that Mike has created every day for over 13 years and posted on the internet for free every day, which is hence the name draws from on this piece, every day's the first 5,000 days. And if you wanted, you could find a JPEG image of this collage on the internet, download it to your phone, set it as your phone's wallpaper even as you listen to this very podcast. But this JPEG is not any old, ordinary digital image. The ownership of this JPEG is certified by what's called an NFT, or non-fungible token. And we'll get to that in just a moment. And Michael Winkleman is better known by his online moniker, Beeple. Or if you follow him on Instagram like I do, his username is Beeple underscore crap where he has over 2 million followers. Now, Beeple creates digital art. His specific style can vary from quite beautiful futuristic sci-fi pieces, often dystopian depictions of planets, humans exploring space and these kind of advanced civilizations. And then some pieces look outright hellish or ridiculous with depictions such as one which shows this giant grotesque Winnie the Pooh which is feeding on a pot of honey in this very creepy dark forest or there's another one of a giant King Kong like Donald Trump completely naked having scaled a giant building to rip the logo of social media app TikTok from the top and he's fending off military attack helicopters just like King Kong did. These kind of pieces are obvious plays on pop culture and current events, both social and political, and have generated a ton of interest online and attention to Mike or Beeple himself. So the question you might be asking, why in the world did someone pay a touch over $69 million for something that can be downloaded as a JPEG? And you might also be asking, what the hell is an NFT? And these are fair questions. In fact, Beeple is not the only person to have actually utilized this technology of digital certification to make real money for their work. 
the NBA has a website called NBA Top Shot, which allows basketball fans to open packs of what they call moments. These are digital photos or videos from iconic moments in the NBA and you can trade them. And they're inherently scarce in that a specific moment such as LeBron James landing a very iconic dunk in a famous finals match might be available as an NFT based on NBA Top Shot. And this will be available as a collectible to purchase or trade, but there may only be 50 of them and that's it, no more. And the technology of the NFT, the non-fungible token, lets you know that this specific LeBron James moment is in fact one of those 50 and you can also see all the other past owners of this moment and what each transaction sale value was between owners and who the current owner is. Again, a reasonable reaction to hearing this might be, yeah, but I can go and watch that video of LeBron James doing that dunk in the exact same game on YouTube and it will cost me absolutely nothing right now. And you'd be right in saying that you can absolutely go do that, but that doesn't make the NFT void of any value. However, critics of this will point to the idea that perhaps people are overestimating their value and perhaps there is a bubble in these online NFT marketplaces that might just be ready to pop, causing some very sky-high valuations to come crashing down. So can a digital piece of work such as Beeple's Everyday's project really be comparable to an original painting by Vincent van Gogh? Does it matter that the collectible or piece of art isn't hanging in your hallway for guests to see when they visit your house or perhaps hanging behind a thick piece of glass at a world-famous museum? Well, to answer that question, let's take the first step and talk about what exactly these NFTs are as they're key to understanding the certification of these digital assets that have exploded in popularity. This is a special Explain This edition of the Market Pulse podcast. Today we're talking about NFTs or non-fungible tokens. The first thing that's worth defining are these NFTs and what exactly they are. So NFT stands for non-fungible token. Think of them as like the signature or certificate that confirms ownership and authenticity of the very thing that that NFT represents. Now these NFTs run on the blockchain. Mostly they are on the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum is a cryptocurrency, it's similar to Bitcoin. And I promise we'll circle back to the blockchain and Ethereum, but first let's just stick to NFTs. The word fungible is the first thing worth mentioning because it's a word with origins in economics. It refers to an asset that has interchangeability, something where one item or an asset is equivalent to another item or asset. The most common example that you'll find cited everywhere you go, especially if you're searching for literature on NFTs, is currency, being that it is fungible. So consider you're walking down the street, I stop you and ask if you have any cash on you, you tell me you've got a $50 note in your pocket. Suppose I give you my $50 note in exchange for your $50 note. 
This transaction represents an example of cash being fungible. It's interchangeable, no party loses out, we both still walk away with $50. You can even take it a little bit further and say that perhaps instead of giving you $50, I give you five $10 notes. Again, there was an exchange in terms of the notes, but no party loses. The cash, providing it's all in the same currency, is the same. A $50 note and five $10 notes produce the same amount of value no matter what. Another example is shares in the stock market. They could be considered fungible. If I have a share in Apple and you have a share in Apple and we swap them, it's the same, has the same value, has the same voting rights. But if I was to swap you my share in Apple for your share in Microsoft, that is a very entirely different transaction. Commodities such as gold are also considered very fungible in that from a purely scientific and biological perspective, one ounce of gold in Australia should be comparable to an ounce of gold in London. However, the essence of fungibility isn't as black and white in the simple way that I've explained here and how you'll see it explained in articles or videos that also explain NFTs. There's a great YouTube channel worth following called Economics Explained and the host I think gives what I believe is a better understanding of fungibility in that it exists on a spectrum, say zero to 10 with zero being perfectly fungible, 10 being not fungible at all. So instead of it being black and white, it just exists on a spectrum. So if we circle back to the idea of cash, the host of Economics Explains cites examples where cash isn't perfectly fungible. So consider $100,000 that's part of a bank robbery stolen from a bank, and perhaps those notes are part of a very specific serial number series, and the bank reports that robbery, and those particular notes, they are actually cancelled from circulation. And institutions will then refuse those notes knowing that they are part of the bank robbery. Now then, those bank notes in the robbery are not very fungible with normal notes in circulation. Another example is, say you are about to buy a luxury sports car. Imagine you pull up to a Porsche dealership and you're going to pick out the brand new Porsche Taycan and you've got the money, you're very wealthy, you're very prepared. In fact, you've come in with cash and the dealership is quite happy to hear that until you literally wheel in giant tubs of 50 cent coins and just dump them all over the dealership floor. Now, technically, you've given them $150,000 or however much this particular Porsche costs, but it's made up of 50 cent coins and the dealership's probably going to get very upset and angry and they don't want to accept this. It will want you to actually just transfer the money via a bank transfer or, or use a bank check. The coins here aren't that fungible to its cash equivalent. So whilst cash is very fungible and it's probably the best example alongside gold, it's not perfectly so. Now these are two very extreme examples and not the kind of scenarios that I think anyone listening to this podcast will run into anytime soon. However, these are great thought experiments to run through to understand how fungibility should be considered on a spectrum and not simply just a yes or no answer. So that's a few examples of things that are as close to perfectly fungible, but let's talk about things that aren't so fungible. Take collector cards, which on face value, especially for people that are outside looking into that collector culture, 
Collector cards can seem very fungible. Something popular in the US such as baseball cards that might depict a specific player and then another replica of that card sitting on the table next to it should in theory be interchangeable. But anyone listening who has collected anything, be it cards, stamps, whiskey, you name it, knows that the world of collecting is far more complex than this. The condition and general wear and tear of the item, specific years items were made, a specific series, whether it was part of a limited set, whether we publicly know how many of those things or how many replicas of that thing exist in the world, all of this can swing the prices of collectible items such as cards up and down by huge numbers. Take a very popular card collecting and also playing game called Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering started in the early 90s. It's a very old game and it is a fantasy style card game where players place these cards that represent monsters and spells on a battlefield and use strategy and tactics to defeat the opposing player. But much like collecting Pokemon cards when I was a kid, part of the passion and enthusiasm that lies behind a game like this is simply collecting the cards themselves, not just playing the game. In fact, some collectors don't even actually play the game. Given that this game started in the 90s, Magic the Gathering has some very old cards in circulation. In fact, many old cards are worth significant sums of money, especially if the company no longer creates that type of card or has retired it from the game itself. Now, this year in January 2021, a collector paid $511,000 US dollars for a 1993 version of a Magic the Gathering card called Black Lotus. Now, Black Lotus is a very old card, considering it's from 1993, but there's no way someone would pay that much for the exact same card if I also owned a Black Lotus that had been significantly damaged or I'd accidentally put through the washing machine or cut in half. This idea speaks again to the concept of assets or items sitting on a spectrum of fungibility, some being more so than others, and in this case, collector cards not being very fungible at all. This article about the sale of the card by Charlie Hall from Polygon explains the reason for the high price a little bit further. Quote, What makes this card so special, however, goes beyond the fact that its corners are a bit wider than today's Magic cards and that its edges are free from chips and scratches. The case this card comes in was signed by artist Christopher Rush, whose style set the tone for this very first edition of the world's most popular collectible card game, and Rush passed away in 2016 at the age of 50. So a very specific example, but something very different to cash, which we discussed as being quite fungible, almost perfectly fungible, but not quite. So from cash all the way to something like collecting a card or collecting a car, like a vintage car or a stamp, which isn't that fungible in that it is not easily interchangeable. But let's pause on the idea of fungibility and also discuss the idea of tokens and blockchains. So the final part of NFTs, the T, stands for token. Consider a token like a unique serial number or a barcode or perhaps a passport, something that stores data on what this is or who it is and who owns it. The token is not only 
your certificate of ownership but your certificate of authenticity. But it's not enough to simply own the token. It needs to be common knowledge that you do indeed own this NFT or this token. And this is where the blockchain comes in. Those of you familiar with the idea of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin may well be aware of this concept of the blockchain. It's something that at least when I first started hearing about it sounded very complex on paper, but can be very simply compared to a record keeping ledger or a database that stores transactional information and historical transactional information. The blockchain powers cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And specifically when we talk about NFTs, they're mostly using the Ethereum blockchain, which also houses the Ethereum cryptocurrency. At its core, the blockchain is a storage house that takes data and turns this data into blocks, chaining it together so that each bit of data and each block becomes part of a larger timeline within the ledger. Consider this simple example where I engage in a transaction to send you one Bitcoin. The transaction is chained into the database or blockchain, forming part of the timeline of this Bitcoin that I'm about to send you. The transaction's complete, I've sent you one Bitcoin, now the ledger or blockchain is updated and it recognizes you as the legitimate owner of that Bitcoin. Now, an important point to make about the blockchain is that it is decentralized. When I use a word like ledger or database, this isn't a private company that stores a private server with their customers' data on it that you and I cannot access publicly. The blockchain is public, so really if I took a very close look at the Bitcoin that you now own, I can see this timeline of blocks and that I was the previous owner and that also I purchased that Bitcoin, say, back in 2017 from its previous owner at the time. Now, this has been a relatively simple rundown on the idea of what the blockchain is. It doesn't cover exactly where and how this data is confirmed, who exactly confirms it and how quick this process is. It also doesn't highlight the value of this type of technology in terms of its application to industries such as supply chains, financial services, healthcare and real estate. We could probably spend an entire podcast or multiple podcasts going down that route. But in fact, many companies already employ blockchain technology or are researching and interested in doing so for their respective businesses, especially in industries such as supply chains and financial services. All you need to know in the example of NFTs is that the blockchain acts as a type of ledger. It's a database of information. And in the example we gave of me sending you my one Bitcoin, that very ledger, the blockchain now recognizes you as the authentic owner of that Bitcoin. And thus we, all of us, recognize that ownership as well. So tying all of this together, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, they're like a certificate or a passport. These NFTs operate on a blockchain. Specifically for most NFTs, they operate on the Ethereum blockchain. And Ethereum is a type of cryptocurrency, just like Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency. When we spoke about the idea of a spectrum of fungibility, I highlighted that currency, like cash, for example, is as close to perfect fungibility in that it is interchangeable. And that is the same for cryptocurrency, such as Ethereum or Bitcoin. Sure, it sounds a little bit more complicated than simple cash, 
But at the end of the day, swapping one Bitcoin for another Bitcoin or one Bitcoin for two halves of a Bitcoin, at the end of the day, the same outcome is reached. But NFTs, given the name, non-fungible tokens, are special encrypted certificates that are unique tokens. And unlike a currency like Bitcoin or Ethereum, these tokens are not interchangeable or identical to another NFT on the blockchain, which is why I use analogies like a passport. Sure, I might have an Australian passport that looks very similar to your Australian passport, but mine is particularly unique to me. And not just because it has my name on it, but because it also has a unique passport number. It is not interchangeable with your passport. A non-fungible token is unique. Let's try and bring this down to a very tangible real world example of a similar process. A few years ago, I upgraded my cheap no-name vacuum to a Dyson vacuum cleaner. When I opened the box, it had a pamphlet in it that invited me to register my specific vacuum cleaner with Dyson for an extra year of warranty. Now, if I did this, I would be supplying a unique serial number that my vacuum cleaner has. Perhaps you come to my house and you see that vacuum cleaner and you really like it and you go out and buy the exact same model. Regardless, yours will have its own serial number. So I went ahead to get that extra warranty. I registered my Dyson vacuum cleaner and in doing so, I added it to Dyson's global database that I, Dion, owned this particular vacuum cleaner. And not just the model that I owned, I owned this very specific serial number assigned to the item that they had produced. Now today, I might have decided that I've had enough of this vacuum cleaner or perhaps I need a bigger one. So I sell it to you or I give it to you because I no longer need it. Unfortunately, Dyson never know this and they'll never know that I no longer own that vacuum because I just privately handed it to a friend or sold it to an individual. To understand the blockchain, you can take this example and apply it to the idea of public ledger with NFTs. The NFT that I owned, in this case, a serial number, which was unique and irreplaceable and represented my vacuum cleaner, certified that it was also in my possession. The reason it was certified as being in my possession is because I registered this unique serial number with Dyson, adding it to their database of vacuum cleaners around the world. For NFTs though, that database is a public ledger. The NFT on the blockchain has already recorded that block in the chain, the transaction, and that shows that I am the owner of this vacuum cleaner. In my very simple example, I gave it to my friend or I sold it to my friend because I didn't want it anymore. In the world of NFTs, I could do the exact same thing. However, the difference would be that the blockchain would take on that new data, certifying that in fact, I no longer owned the NFT and that it belonged to my friend. Anyone could now check the blockchain and see that this transaction has occurred and I no longer owned the NFT and subsequently the certification or serial number or digital passport, whatever you want to call it, which states that I do own that thing, transfers on the ledger that is the blockchain. And finally, instead of a vacuum cleaner, an NFT can be used to certify and confirm ownership of an NBA top shot moment, like we discussed at the top of the show. It could also be used to certify ownership of Beeple's everyday's digital art piece. In fact, I could actually create an NFT attached to this very podcast episode. And although this podcast is completely free 
and available to everyone to download and listen to at any time, the NFT and whoever owns it can certify that they are the owner of this piece of digital media. Now, that doesn't stop the podcast being free and available. In fact, you can play this exact scenario out in the real world by attending a gallery or museum and you see a painting on the wall. If you look for a small white placard that usually states the title of the painting to its side, it'll also state the artist and often you will see something like courtesy of this person or donated by this family. Now, none of us really care about that so much, but that is the certification identifying who actually owns this painting. The NFTs are no different. They're just digital. Sure. I think it's, I think it's a bubble. I do think there is a bubble and I think um, where we are at in that bubble or, or if it's not a bubble now, I do believe it probably will be a bubble at some point because there's just so many people rushing into the space. Um, but I, I look at it sort of the technology behind it is so simple. It's just proving ownership of something backed by the blockchain. And so it can be applied to so many different things outside of, of you know, digital art. I really look at this as, uh, you know, something that could be a very viable alternate asset class. And so I think, well, there is, could be a bubble, just like with the Internet, um, there was a big bubble. Everybody was super, super hyped about it, um, but it didn't kill the Internet when the bubble popped. It just kind of wiped out all the crap. And so I, I honestly think that's what's going to happen with this. It's going to take all of the things that are just hype and like not real projects and those will go to zero, but it's not going to kill this technology because the technology I, I think is, is sort of simple enough and, and strong enough to survive any sort of, you know, crazy irrational exuberance. That clip there was Beeple himself or Mike Winkleman, who we introduced at the very start of this podcast episode. He's the artist behind the $69 million NFT sale on his piece, Every Day is the First 5,000 Days. And the audio you heard is an interview that you can check out on YouTube. It's from Coindesk. It's titled, What's Next for Beeple After Dizzying $69 Million NFT Sale. And I play that clip to give you an artist's insight into the benefits and legitimacy of the NFT movement because it's worth rounding out this episode by discussing the reasons why someone might purchase an NFT. It's legitimacy versus owning a real asset such as a painting or a collectible car and whether this space is pure speculation that has resulted in a bubble about to burst. We'll get to the bubble bit, but let's ask ourselves why would someone buy an NFT, especially something that is available for free. The NBA Top Shots example is a good one here because LeBron James dunking on someone is something I could find on YouTube quite quickly. Well, this next bit comes directly from a collector. His name is Jesse Schwartz. It's an interview he did with NBA on ESPN about why he paid $208,000 for an NFT of LeBron James. Yeah, I mean, I've been on Top Shot since almost the beginning, since like August. So to see it grow over the last few months and then January, February to really explode, um, it just felt like the right time to make a splash. And personally, I mean, I've been a huge LeBron James fan since he came in the league. Um, so there's no one I'd rather bet on. I think he's the greatest athlete of all time and somehow still doesn't get his recognition. I play that clip because he highlights a few reasons as to why someone would buy an NFT. The first is collector culture and the communities that make up collectors. You and I might not find basketball that interesting. I certainly don't. But I understand and appreciate that my view isn't shared amongst all people across the world. 
where I fail to see value, others might. The same can be said for stamps, coins, Pokemon cards, vintage cars. The other aspect worth pointing out from that clip is that Jesse said he loves LeBron James, considers him the greatest of all time. Again, he's simply a fan of the athlete and owning this NFT is part of being a fan. It's part of him showing how much of a fan he is of LeBron and also supporting him through the ownership of this NFT. Another point worth highlighting is scarcity. This specific LeBron James moment that Jesse paid $208,000 for is a moment where only 49 NFTs were created to represent this exact clip of LeBron James performing that dunk. 49 NFTs and that's it, no more. When I discussed my vacuum cleaner example earlier in the episode, that was to help explain an NFT and the blockchain. But if you really think about it, it's a bit of a silly example because there is nothing inherently value about the vacuum from a scarcity perspective in that it is identical to many others and many new ones that are being produced as we speak. NFTs, as discussed, are different in that they are non-fungible. A single NFT might be made or limited to just 49 NFTs to represent an NBA moment like the LeBron dunk. If I was to discuss traditional collectibles, such as cards or stamps, even artwork, one of the drivers of value behind these items is not just their individual condition, but the idea that we aren't exactly sure what else is out there. I might have a valuable baseball card, but it's uncertain if one in a similar condition lies dormant in a box, forgotten in someone's garage or basement. Of course, we cannot discount the role that the internet plays in bridging communication between collectors around the world, but that idea of scarcity of the item is an important piece in understanding the value. In fact, even as early as this year, there has been millions of dollars paid for single baseball cards, and scarcity has a big reason as to why people would pay that much money. My final point on the idea behind owning an NFT is the one that I think is hardest to wrap your head around because it's counterintuitive to the way we traditionally understand things and it speaks to the inherent value in owning the NFT and it being publicly known that you are the owner of the NFT. In January 2014, I was in New York and visited the Museum of Modern Art. The main attraction for me was seeing Van Gogh's Starry Night. It's a painting he produced during his time admitted to a French asylum. Now, Starry Night is prolific. You can find it available as computer wallpapers, phone cases, cheap replica canvas copies on eBay. When I was at the Museum of Modern Art, their gift shop sold countless items dedicated to this one painting. But that doesn't take away the value from the original piece itself. In fact, it was actually hard enough to get a glimpse of the painting given how many people were crowding around to see it. The same can be said for the Mona Lisa in the Louvre and the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo. These are pieces of art that have been replicated and reproduced for years and years, and yet the value of these items have not decreased. In fact, it can be argued that the opposite occurs. The value has increased due to the sheer popularity and reproduction of the art under various forms. The other point about ownership is that it is quite powerful and valuable in of itself. If I put a cheap canvas copy of Starry Night in my hallway, my friends when they visit my house don't say, oh my gosh, you own Starry Night. No, 
It's public knowledge that is kept in New York at MoMA, which is why we place value also on the idea of traveling there just to see it in the flesh or traveling to Paris just to see the Mona Lisa when you could have just stared at my cheap canvas replica. That, I believe, is the hardest thing to understand with NFTs. They're new, they're digital, but I would ask you to consider if they really are that different to other well-established collector cultures. My answer would be no. I tend to side with the argument that perhaps there is a bubble in pockets of this new frenzy for NFTs. It's very likely that there are silly values being placed on otherwise worthless digital media. And I can certainly see those crashing in value. But artists such as Beeple are already well-established and famous creators who have a following. He has even worked and done designs for famous music artists such as Justin Bieber. When he first tried out NFTs on a single piece of his work, they were posted online for a dollar. So a single dollar to own the NFT and this website just crashed due to the sheer volume of people wanting to own a piece of his artwork. Furthermore, given the popularity of Beeple as an artist and content creator, you can't discount the value that people place on just owning something associated with him, just like we might buy a jersey to support our favorite sports team. But my focus and interest on NFTs is the technological side in what they represent. They are also smart contracts and provide a lot of value to creators. For example, say I am a famous painter, I sell a painting for a million dollars, that's it. The new owner might keep it forever, they might sell it immediately, they might sell it eventually one day, who knows, but that's the last of it for me. With NFTs, they are smart contracts. The original creator, in this case, say I created a digital piece of art and that NFT sells for a million dollars, as the original creator, I actually receive a cut every time that piece is then resold in the future. It's kind of like receiving a royalty payment for my work, and that's pretty cool. You can also picture NFTs being used as a form of contract in areas like financial services or real estate, using the blockchain to see where deposits are paid, when landlords sign documents, or when sellers transfer deed of ownership. So perhaps the frenzy dies away and perhaps some people are left holding worthless NFTs for silly digital media items that they represent. But it would be amiss to not believe that every other sports entity in the world isn't staring at the NBA in absolute envy right now for this brand new revenue stream that they've created among rabid fans who are just keen to be part of a new collector culture. For us here in Australia, the idea that the AFL, the NRL, Cricket Australia don't jump on board this exact same idea, create their own NFT collectibles is ridiculous. I'm sure they will. But certainly, I don't believe the technology itself is going anywhere. It's a new world of alternative assets and collector culture. The tech itself is innovative in that it has the ability to power smart contracts that can reward original content creators or display a ledger for a transfer of sale. That, I believe, is not going anywhere. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. This was episode 52, a special explain this edition on the world of NFTs. Now, I've actually gone back to a few of the other kind of special podcast episodes. There's only been a few of them where we've focused or honed in on very specific topics. There was the Wall Street Bets GameStop one we did earlier in the year. And then last year we did one on sustainable or ethical investing. And I've just renamed that to this new style of episode called Explain This. And this is something that will pop up every now and again when I think it's 
I guess, valuable or relevant to really touch on something that's popular in the media right now or something that's a little bit confusing. I was just thinking before about potential Australian-based sport NFTs. I would like to try and bid on an NFT from Cricket Australia of the clip of Andrew Simons dropping his shoulder and leveling that naked streaker who ran onto the pitch that time. That would be definitely worth a fair bit of money. Thank you so much for listening. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, drop a review or a rating, a star rating on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Tell your friends about it. A bit of word of mouth marketing always goes a long way. But that is it for the show. My name is Dion Gribben. Thank you again for listening. See you next week for episode 53.